It's so good to be here with, with you all and to worship. To worship the Lord with you, to sing these songs to him and to one another, it really is glorious. As, as, um, as Cheryl was praying, it was, I, was, I was thinking about the fact that, that many of us perhaps are coming out of, um, coming off of very difficult weeks, um, whether it's, whether it's the, the problems and the difficulties and the challenges that we're experiencing personally or perhaps in our families, or maybe it's just the weight of the trouble that we're experiencing that the world is experiencing, and we carry something of that with us through the week, and I was reminded that when we gather as a church to worship and to see what God has to tell us, it's not, we're not, we're not sticking our heads in the sand and ignoring all the problems of the world. No, we're not sticking our heads in the sand to distract ourselves. Instead, what we're really doing is we're raising our head above the, the fog of war and of trouble to see what lies beyond all of the trouble, and to see that Jesus is, in fact, on his throne, that he is good, and he is just, and we have the hope, the hope of salvation, redemption, resurrection in him. And so we come into a, a place like this, and we gather not to ignore reality, but to be reminded of what is real and true and lasting, and where our hope is. Amen. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to be able to do that with you today. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to be thinking about what it means to live as one, to live as one. Way back on April 5th, 2003, Delimar Garcia Ramirez, who is the woman who you see on that, in that picture, and I, I'm the guy next to her, we entered into a covenant together back on April 5th of 2003. We made vows in the presence of God and our presence of our family and our friends. And, and since that day, she and I have been joined as husband and wife until death do us part. According to Jesus, we became one flesh. And, and that is objectively true. It's undeniably true. But that doesn't mean that she and I have lived every moment in light of that objective truth. We have not. At times, I have ignored her needs. At times, we've differed sharply, and we haven't handled those disagreements with love and understanding. If you're married, perhaps you can relate to that. The simple fact is that we can be objectively united, bound to one another by a covenant, but fail to act like it. We can neglect the covenant we made. We can forget that God has made us one. In fact, it takes effort and intentionality to practically live as one. The last time I had the joy of being here with you, we saw from 1 Peter chapter 2 that, that if you have believed in Jesus Christ and have received him as Savior, as Lord, then, then you have been united to every other believer in Jesus Christ. You are objectively united to every other Christian worldwide and throughout history by grace. We are now part of a new household. We are part of a family. We've been made one, and that goes for everyone who names Jesus as Lord worldwide and across the centuries. We are united, and God calls us to live out 
that unity in practical ways at the local level in our churches, like CBC and my home church, New Hope Fellowship. Last time I was here, I used the phrase, think globally, act locally. And the idea is simply remember that we are part of something very, very big that spans the centuries and spans the globe, but let's act like it here locally in the place where God has planted us, in the very community that we worship and serve him in. That's where our bond, that's where our oneness is meant to be lived out. But it's also at that local level that our unity can be harmed and undermined, fractured. It's where damage can be done. So I'd remind you again of my marriage, or perhaps of your marriage, if you're married, or, or any close, committed relationship that you have. The bond that you enjoy with that person, whoever it is that you love and you're committed to, that bond, that, that, that's a gift from God. But you know that you can't be passive in your attitude towards that relationship or towards that person. You know you can't be passive. If you are, the relationship will suffer. But we'll harm it through our neglect or perhaps even through betrayal. Think about your family. Isn't it possible that we can be a household but not live like a household? We can, through any number, for any number of reasons, begin to feel like we're roommates. We live under the same roof. Or we're business partners. We get stuff done together. Or at worst, we can even start to feel like we're enemies. You can forget, you can forget what binds you together in the first place. And so it is with the church. We can begin to live as if we are not united by Jesus and his gospel. We, we can allow neglect or, or sin to, to strain our relationships with each other. And we, we can even let differences, differences that were meant to enrich our lives and, 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 and to, to make this community more beautiful, we can allow those differences to divide us. And that's why we must work at unity. We must work at unity. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, tells us how to do that. Now, the New Testament is actually, and you may know this, filled with calls to unity. The, the, the writers of the New Testament often, often are calling God's people to be of one mind, to love one another, to stay connected. I'll give you some examples, and let's read these. Let's read them carefully and, and let the weight of each one of these settle on us. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In Romans 15, the Apostle says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, Peter, the apostle, has these words for us in 1 Peter 3. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
Now, maybe you notice that built into these calls, these instructions, there's also often a warning along with the instruction, warning against things like quarrels and divisions and reviling and revenge. These are threats to unity, aren't they? Sometimes the apostles would even call out individuals in their letters and say, I've heard that so-and-so are, are, are in conflict. Help them make peace. Call them to reconcile. Now, all of this, all these warnings and these instructions, they imply to us that unity isn't just important, but that it's hard. It's hard. We should just admit that. Because if it weren't hard, the apostles wouldn't have addressed it so often. So let's just admit it and, and admit how much we need these reminders and how much we need the Holy Spirit to move us towards one another in love and tenderness and of all the passages we could focus on, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So let's read it once again. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Eager, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not passive about unity or neglectful of it or presuming it, but eager to maintain it. Eager to maintain the unity. To maintain it simply means that to, to preserve it, right? It means protect it because it's valuable. So cherish it. But, but notice the Apostle Paul doesn't say, maintain the unity of the church although he could have said that he chooses not to instead he calls it the unity of the spirit literally it's the oneness of the spirit huh and then he goes on to say there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see the repeated theme, one, one, one. Here's my best attempt at explaining what Paul's getting at here. God is three in one. He is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, who here is referred to as the Lord and the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and when anyone com comes to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son, as Lord, he or she is brought into a relationship with the Father. And it's uh, uh, an unbreakable bond with the Father. You are, in fact, accepted and adopted into his family. And, and as if that were not enough, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, begins to live in you, to dwell in you. That means that if you have believed in Jesus, you are now members of God's family, his one family, and his one Holy Spirit lives in you, in us all. He is one spirit, and so we should all live as one family. He is one spirit in all of us, and so we should live as one body, as, as 
one household. Does, does that make sense, right? I know that the, I know that the idea of, of, of one God existing in three persons is, is mysterious, and it's, and it's ultimately unexplainable. But, but the point that I'm making here is, is, is a simpler point. It's simply this. There's one Holy Spirit who lives in all of us. His presence unites us as one. We are connected by a spiritual bond that gives us peace with one another. We no longer need to view one another as competitors or as opponents or enemies or as a threat. We, we now can view one another as family. That's the unity of the Spirit. It's the unity that we have because the one Spirit lives in us all. He is one, and so we are one. When we embrace that one faith and we were baptized with that one baptism, we, we now have this faith and this baptism which unite us. They, they have this in common. Yes, but at a deeper level, at a deeper level, what bonds us to one another is the Spirit of God himself who makes us one. So Paul says that oneness matters. That oneness, that objective reality of the Spirit's presence in all of us, uniting us, matters. Don't take it for granted. Don't neglect it. Don't live as if you're not one when you are. Because when you live that way, when you live as if you're not one, you actually grieve the Holy Spirit, he says. That's what he says down in verse 30. Don't grieve this one Holy Spirit who has united you. We cause grief to God himself when we allow, quote, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander into our hearts and into our relationships. Now, while preserving unity is hard, I, hope, I, I think we'd all admit that. Let's also admit that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander are all pretty easy. They all come pretty naturally, don't they? over hurts and, and, and offenses, over politics, over disagreements, over differing opinions, even over differing opinions on what the Bible says about secondary matters, we can start to experience bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander in our hearts. Oh, it comes so easy. Bitterness. Bitterness is not hate, by the way. Bitterness is just that settled kind of disappointment and resentment towards someone because of how they've treated you or because of some perceived slight, perhaps. It's that, it's that steady, settled, negative posture. Wrath and anger, that takes it up a notch, right? Wrath and anger are a little bit more intense. That's, that's more outwardly visible. You can live with bitterness and no one may even know. Wrath and anger becomes a little bit more obvious. It's aggressive. And clamor, clamor is very obvious. Clamor has to do with shouting and raising our voices in anger towards one another. Slander. Slander is speaking evil. Slander are words that are that undermine and destroy relationships and reputations. And you know, the Bible word for slander, the, the English word slander usually is used, at least legally, it's used to, to, to talk about saying things that are untrue about someone that, that ruins their reputation in some way or hurts them in some way, right? That's what slander is. The Bible word for slander is not that it can actually be true. 
what, what I mean, the Bible word for slander has to do with speaking evil of others, even when it's true. But it's meant to undermine, it's meant to ruin, it's meant to hurt, it's meant to, to alienate. And you see, of course, how it destroys unity. I became pastor of New Hope Fellowship, our church, in 2016. I didn't realize, uh, none of us did, all of what was in store for us as a church and as a nation in, in, the, in that year, 2016, and since then, right? If you, if you just reflect, you know, what, what's happened in our world since 2016? You think we've had some things to fight about? Have we had some, some things to, to differ and, and, and even slander and clamor and grow bitter? And wrathful and angry about. We've had some reasons to, to divide. But our church made it. We made it. And so did, so did you. You're still here. Now who can say what 2024 has in store for us? We don't know. You don't know what a day will bring forth. <laughs> Psalm 27 tells us. But I am pretty sure that it's going to bring us more opportunities for, quote, humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing one another with one another in love. In this new year, we are going to be confronted with the need to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a guarantee. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul starts this section of, of Ephesians chapter 4 by saying, verse 1, he says, I therefore, prisoner, for the Lord urge you to, and here's what, I'm, here's what I want us to look at, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy. This, this happens to be the, the halfway point in Paul's letter. The, the whole first half of the letter to the Ephesians, he's been describing what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us to one another. It's all been, the whole half, first half of the letter, it's all been about what God has done through the gospel and how he has given us a new identity as his people, united by his spirit. And now, in chapter 4, he's saying, live as if everything I've told you is true. Because it is. Conduct yourselves in light of everything I've told you. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's not make yourself worthy of what God has done for you. It's, it's walk in the reality of it. Walk in a way that aligns with what God has done for you. And, 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 and that aligns with a real faith in what God has done for you. To reconcile you to himself and to one another. You've been called into God's family. You've been called into this great big community of God's people from every part of the world. You've been called to worship and serve the Lord Jesus who died and rose again to bring you to God. So now live like it. Live like it. And a great big part of living like it is by treasuring and protecting the unity and the peace that God has called you into with the very people around you. Not some theoretical, hypothetical unity, but a true unity with the people right here in this room. Paul will explain, if you, if, if, you, if you really want to maintain that unity, here's what it's going to take. You will have to think and act with, verse 2, you're going to think, have to think and act with humility. All humility. 
not just a, a bit, <laughs> more humility <laughs> and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. So he's saying if you're passionate about Jesus, you're going to be passionate about unity. And if you're passionate about unity, you're going to have to be passionate about being humble and gentle and patient and forbearing. And forbearing simply means to put up with one another. And, and, and he says it's all going to be motivated by love. Love. Love for Jesus, which then leads to love for the people he's called you into community with. But, but let's think for a moment about what usually happens in the midst of conflict. Someone gets you mad. Maybe, maybe, maybe you feel like you've been wronged. You've been disrespected. Or, or, can you believe this? Maybe someone even disagrees with you. What usually happens in those moments? Isn't it true that, look at our list, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, aren't those sometimes the first things to go out the window in the midst of conflict? It, it's almost unnoticeable, but, but immediately humility starts to get replaced with self-righteous pride. I'm right here and you're wrong. You hurt me. Gentleness gets traded in for harshness because you start to believe that gentleness isn't going to put this person in their place. Gentleness is not going to fix what's been done here. I need to get louder. I need to get harsher. I need to get more aggressive. Patience and forbearance become frustration. And as a result, what happens? The conflict simply escalates. Take each of these words in Ephesians 4 to humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Take each of those words in Ephesians and, and replace them with their opposite. And that's what escalating conflict looks like. Now, the fact is the conflict is going to happen, even within a happy, united household. Conflict will happen. We will disagree, won't we? We will even frustrate one another and hurt one another. Ephesians doesn't just show us how to minimize the chances that that will happen. What Ephesians does is it shows us how to deal with it when it does happen. When the conflict arises, he says, humble yourselves. That means getting off our self-righteous high horse by intentionally treating the other person with gentleness Gentleness, that means no hurtful words, no diminishing words, no generalizations. You always do this. You never do that. Those words aren't true. No gossip, but patiently recognizing that you're not so easy to get along with yourself sometimes, and that you too have said and done some dumb, hurtful things, and putting up with one another. Putting up with one another out of love, love for your brother and your sister and for the Lord. It was, it was John Stott, the great English pastor, author, who he described the patience here in verse 2. He says it's, it's long-suffering towards aggravating people, such as God in Christ has shown toward us. I love it because he says, he says it's, it's, it's long-suffering towards aggravating people like you. Has the Lord been long-suffering 
with aggravating people. Ephesians 4, 32, down at the, towards the end of this chapter, the Apostle Paul tells us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, it's all driven by the gospel. It's because you have been forgiven by Christ, because he has forgiven you, now you're being called to forgive others. And the assumption here, of course, don't miss it, if we're being called to forgive one another, it's be, the assumption is there's going to be hurt, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be offenses. How will you respond? Be kind, he says. Tender. Forgiving. Conflict will come. But how will we respond when it comes? When we, when we operate in the way that the Apostle Paul is calling us to, I think what we can do is we can keep conflict from simply escalating or becoming what I've heard some call high conflict. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I was listening to an interview recently with, a, with the author of a book. Her name's Amanda Ripley. She wrote a book called High Conflict. And she's talking about the fact that, that conflict is normal. We fight and, and we can reconcile and we can forgive. But, but there are points where things get, they, they, they turn a corner, they heighten, and they become a different quality of conflict altogether, what she calls high conflict. And, and she says it's hard to describe exactly what it looks like, but here's some markers of high conflict. Here's where things have taken a turn for the worse. She says, she says, you know that you're involved in high conflict when the person that you are at odds with, you've actually started to feel pleasure at their misfortune. That's the opposite of love, isn't it? direct opposite of love. Or, or she said, when the other person that you're at odds with or in disagreement with, they can do something good or something you agree with, but you can't acknowledge it. You can't bring yourself to acknowledge the good. She says, here's another last one, last feature of heightened or high conflict. She says, you find yourself playing out detailed arguments in your head with this person in bed at night. And you're, you're forming these, these magnificent, defeating arguments in your head on the things that you wish you could say or will say if you get up the courage and you get the chance to to this person. So we can keep conflict from becoming high conflict, and we can see it instead dissipate if we will, if we will be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. If we are willing, if we are willing to approach one another with gentleness, Humility, all humility, with forbearance, and with love. Perhaps you've seen this happen. You've seen even high conflict dissipate and end with reconciliation and healing. Maybe you've seen this in your marriage. If you haven't, oh, it's there. It's possible. The Spirit loves, loves to bring people into unity. Just a point of clarification as I close. God calls us to unity as, as, as churches, as a church, but it's unity on his terms, not, not our terms. Um, sometimes I think we, we think, you know, we, we, would, we, would, we would have unity if everyone just agreed with me, <laughs> you know. If, 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 if my preferences and, and my perspective were adopted by the rest of you, man, everything would be great. But that's not the case in any church, is it? And it's not the kind of unity that God calls us to. Here's a quote by the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a, a Lutheran pastor during, during World War II. 
He says, he who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of community. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The reason I share this quote is because it resonates with me. It, it makes me think about the fact that, that I can want my church, or you might want your church, to look a particular way, to, be, to, to align perfectly with your preferences, your perspectives, your opinions. You have a vision for what you want the church to be. And he's saying that if you love that vision, that dream of what the church should be, more than you love the actual church that God's made you a part of, you will become a destroyer of that church that you have this grand vision for. Have you seen this happen? Like it happened at the family level. If I can have such a, a vision for what I want my kids to be like, what I want our family life to look like, so much so that I fail to see the beauty of what it is right now. I fail to see God's grace at work. I just want, I want that dream family. I end up destroying my family as a result. I think Bonhoeffer was right. And I think he's calling us to pursue unity on God's terms. Unity of the Spirit is not uniformity. Unity of the Spirit allows for disagreement but it rejects animosity and vengeance and hate. It, it differentiates, it different, unity of the spirit differentiates between essential closed-handed matters and secondary open-handed matters. The unity of the spirit allows for disagreement on those secondary matters and opinions, but it preserves peace even when there is disagreement. And so as I end today, I wanna to ask you if there's anyone that has come to mind, perhaps any relationships that have come to mind, um, are there any relationships in the church that need your attention, that need your prayer and your intentional, humble focus? People who you need to forgive. People you need to draw closer to. Has unity or peace been broken? Have you been letting tension or disaffection sit in, settle in? Has it become normal? And you know it's not getting better. I believe the Lord is giving us, and he gives us often these chances to respond to that, to act, to move towards others. Now, if no one comes to mind and there aren't any of those broken relationships, then praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. But will you commit yourself to preserve that unity and not take it for granted, to nurture it? If there is anyone that the Lord is laying on your heart, maybe it's, maybe it's not someone that, that there's, there's a broken relationship with but it's just someone that you haven't drawn close to you don't know them very well yet and maybe maybe the lord is calling you to move towards them to press in towards those who, who maybe differ from you and and embrace those differences not to debate your differences necessarily i want to encourage you to continue to pray for one another and when conflict does begin to work and pray to live as one. Ephesians 4 is a call against passivity. I've heard some say, you know, we need to, when it comes to unity in the church, we need to pray like it's all up to God and then work like it's all up to us. I, I, I would tweak that. I would say, no, no. I would say pray like it's all up to God and then work like you've been guaranteed success by God. 
because the guarantee that we have is that in the final day, the church of God worldwide will, won't just objectively be one, but will look and live and act as one. We, we can have a foretaste of that now when we push in towards each other with gentleness, humility, forbearance, and love. So let's do it. Let's, 